Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. That's significant. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Every time there was a Passover, Jesus was in Jerusalem. They all come together. Jesus was in Jerusalem. But here we are. It's near, and he goes the other direction. Have you noticed how many times Jesus just, just does the opposite of what people would typically do. So he goes the opposite direction. He heads across the Sea of Galilee. He's over there in that remote uh, territory where they didn't have much economy. They didn't have much going on for them. He's just over there in remote territory. And the phrase I want us to pull out, and what we're going to do today is uh, from these five parts, I want to pull out five phrases out of the text that I think are significant, and I could preach a sermon on each one of these five, but the first one is the far shore. He went to the far shore, the other side, the uttermost part of the earth. He went to the far shore. That's interesting. It, it, it reminds me of that famous Father's Day story in the Bible about the father that had two sons. And the younger son says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance now. I'm not interested in your kingdom. I am not interested in your life. I am not interested in what you built up. I want to do this on my own. I want to find my own way. So the father gave him his share of the inheritance. And remember what the son did? He went to a far country far away. He's going to feel guilty as long as he's hanging around Father's kingdom. So he's got to go far away to discover who he is. I had to do that in my life. I had to go to the far side. I had to go way over there to the far shore to discover who I was and how desperately I needed a Savior far country. And I'm reminded of Abraham. God told him to uproot himself, to leave his family, his connections, his religion, and he wanted him to go to a place he was going to show him. And he wouldn't know he was there till God showed him he was there. So he didn't know where he was going. Kind of like us in our spiritual journey. We think we know where we're going, but we won't know for sure till we get there and the Lord says, this is, this is where you're going. This is the place. Where did Abraham have to go to start over? A far country. A far country. So I think the far country, the far shore, represents for us Christians who are trying to see what is God saying out of this story? What can we hear for ourselves in the 21st century from the story is that Jesus is always interested in the far, the far shore. He's always interested over there. We'd rather stay in here where it's safe, but Jesus is always interested in going way over there to the far country. Sometimes I just like to take a drive through Waterloo, up and down the streets, 
look at the homes, look and see who's out and about, and get myself a visual of who I'm praying for. Because I want to see the lost come to Christ. Amen. I'm concerned about the people who are staying home today to watch TV or whatever they do on a Sunday morning because they have no desire to connect with God. Or they watch some great sermon on TV where there's no accountability required of them. Just watch it. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the whole, the whole principle is we once were all far off. And through Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit who seeks us out and pulls us in, we who were once afar off are now come near. Isn't that good news? So we have to be careful not to shame the people who are still out there on the far shore because that's where we came from. Amen. It's the grace of God that bring, brought us from the far shore in and it's the grace of God that will bring those outside in here. Amen. Now, once he got to the far shore, he went up into a mountain. What's significant of that? Mountains are where you meet with God. You know, that's where Moses, that's where God told Moses, when I've delivered you, I'm going to meet you here on this mountain. That's where God spoke to Moses and said, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And once he went and did it, and God gave him that miracle, they went back to the mountain. On the mountain, God gave him a law, the Ten Commandments. This is my will for people to follow. I expect them to live by these values, by these standards. He got that word on a mountain. It was on Mount Calvary that Jesus paid the price for my sin and yours. Mountains are meeting places where we meet with God. Jesus prayed all night on the, 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 uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know that the Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. Mountains represent where we meet with God. Sometimes Jesus would just get away from the crowds and go up on a mountain to pray. That's where we meet with God. So Jesus is in this remote territory and he goes up on a mountain. Why would he be going to a mountain, do you think? He's going to connect with God. He's going to pray. So he goes up to the mountain to see God. Because there's an atmosphere change when you go to the mountain. Many times I've, uh, 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 I've led 12 trips to the Dominican Republic, short-term missions trips where people from our church went. And each time we've gone to the mountains, and I'm amazed the temperature difference, the atmospheric change going from where it's, it's 90 plus degrees so humid, the sweat drips off your nose, and you go just a few miles up into the mountains and it all clears off. And the humidity is not nearly as bad and the temperature drops 10 to 15 degrees. Oh, it feels good. There's an atmospheric change that has to happen if we want to connect with God. And Jesus went up into the mountain to see that atmosphere 
change that that thing happen. Now he's in a remote territory. There's no place for them to go buy food. He's up into a mountain to pray. But that's the first part of our story. I want to proceed to the second part as we look at verses 5, 6, and 7. The story continues. When Jesus looked up, catch that, he's up on a mountain. And it says, when he looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Notice Jesus asked a specific question. Where are we going to buy bread? And notice Philip, who answered, did not answer his question. He came up with an excuse as to why it couldn't be done. That's the temptation we all have, isn't it? The phrase I want us to see is Jesus looked up. He's up on the mountain, but when he looked up, it's amazing what you see if you look up. I mean, we're, in our society, we're really good at looking down. It's amazing what you see if you look up and look around and see what's around us. We need to be looking at the real world around us and the real hurts and the real destruction and the real devastation going on in this world. When we hear about the economy is booming and, and, and businesses are soaring and they can't find enough employees. I think Jesus would not be looking at the statistics. He would be looking at people's hearts. And looking at people's hearts, he might come to a different conclusion in our economy, in our world. There are changes all around us. The older you are, the more you recognize the changes because it's the, more, it's, it's the older you get, the more radical the shifts are from what they used to be. Changes in, in uh, our, the moral values of our country. Changes in our, our, our life goals. When I got out of high school, my job was, my, my dream was to get a job so I could get a better car. I didn't have this ambition of having a career. I just wanted to get by. But God has done a work in my heart, and, and, and I expect more than just to have a better car in my, for my life today. There's changes all around us. We need to look up, and what do we see? When you get home, maybe not today, wait until it cools down a bit, but sit on your front porch a bit, or your back deck, and just sit there and look at your neighbors. And see what the Lord tells you. See if the Lord doesn't show you something as we become observant. Jesus looked up and he saw this crowd coming at him. Now they're over here in a remote area. There's no McDonald's. There's no Wendy's. 
There's no Penguin Point. There's no place. And Jesus asked the group the question, where shall we buy bread to feed these? Jesus opened the topic. And Philip's the first one to speak up. I appreciate it when people aren't just silent. You know, they participate in the conversation. And Jesus said, where are we going to find bread? And Philip speaks up. And he says, it would take half a year's wages to buy enough food for even everybody to have one bite. Impossible, right? That's what he's saying. This is totally impossible. Half a year's wages, which I am very disappointed in the way the New International Version translated that. Half a year's wages. That's, that's paraphrasing what the word is so you can dumb it down for people like me. I don't want it dumbed down. I want to know what did God say? What, what's, in the, what's in the word? And what the word says is it would take 200 denarii. That is a specific amount. 200 denarii. Don't just tell me half a year. 200 means something. Give me the 200. Let me research what 200 means in the Bible. The term 200 is used uh, multiple times in the Bible. That number represents insufficiency, not quite enough. Whenever you see 200, it means we've got some, but not enough. Insufficient. For example, 1 Samuel chapter 30 verse 10 says 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley. But David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. You see, the 200 here were the people too tired to go, too exhausted, too worn out. We have enough, but it's not enough. Insufficient. So when he says 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to feed everyone just a little, people who study the Bible understand 200 has a symbolic meaning here. It's not enough. Okay, so Jesus looked up. The third part of our story is in verses 8 and 9 as the story continues. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? How far will that go among so many? You know, you have to hand it to Andrew. He doesn't just say, can't be done, like Philip did. He went and found somebody. He took an action step to meet the need. And he found this lad that had five small barley loaves and two small fish. He found the lad, and he came back and gave a report to Jesus. And then he put his disclaimer on the end. But how far will that go among so many? Jesus didn't need to hear his lack of faith commentary. All he had to do was say, well, we found, we found something. We found something because all Jesus needs is something. He's just got to have a seed to work with. He's just got to have something. And Andrew found something, but right away he revealed his level of faith. 
that's why it says Jesus asked them this, testing them. It was a test. He wanted to know where their faith was. And they flunked the test. They didn't do good. One says, can't be done. And the other one says, well, what's this little bit for so many? He, he looked at the small barley loaves, and he looked at the small fish, and he looked at the big problem, and he could not see the small solution fitting the whole problem. It's kind of like us, isn't it? We, we see what little bit we got, and we see this mountain of a problem, and we have no idea how that can be resolved. They had their eyes on the problem. The more you stare at something, the more prominent it becomes. Jesus brought the problem to them, and they see the problem. And he asked them, where are we going to get food to solve this problem? And this problem became huge. And the solution to the huge problem is small. And the disciples can't relate that. The, the, their math wasn't connecting. Five small loaves, two small fish, 5,000 hungry guys. No way. They couldn't put this together. The math didn't add up for them. It was an impossible thing. The Old Testament version of that is Psalm 78, 19. Did we get that changed? Yeah. They spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Way out here in no man's land, can God really spread a table? What that means for us is we're saying, can God really provide for me in, in this wasteland, in the uttermost part of the earth we call DeKalb County, can God really spread a table out here? Can God really feed us? Can God really meet our needs? And the story is all about giving people like us who are full of doubt hope. How far will that go? Okay, let's get out of the negative and get into some positive because we're going to on, go on with our story in verses 10 and 11. Then Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass at that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. The phrase you want to put down there is, have the people sit down. Have the people sit down. The King James Version said, make the people sit down. They're probably not going to sit down on their own, so you need to organize them. Get them to sit down. 
Now, I, I thought this, before we get in, I want to share four practical principles to seeing a miracle, God's provision in your life. I'm going to share these four in just a minute. But before I do this, I just thought it was interesting. They're way over here in this wasteland where there's no economy, there's no business going on. They're over there in this remote land. And the only thing they have a lot of is grass. Plenty of grass. Plenty of grass. And it's connected to Jesus saying, have the people sit down. Doesn't want them sitting in the dirt. He doesn't want us sitting in the dirt. Where there's plenty of grass, you can sit down. Got to have them sit down. And God provides a place for us to sit. That's the good news. So here's the, here's the four thing. The first one, A, A in my outline, you, this, this isn't on your page, but you can write it down if you want to. There's got to be some organization. There's got to be some structure. If a miracle has got to take place, the people can't just be roaming around bumping into each other. There's got to be some structure. So Jesus says, have the people sit down, and they sat down in groups of 50, 100. We would call that small groups. It's kind of like what the local church is. We got, got to get in clusters. We got to get in, in systems of people that think alike, that have a common goal, that want to work together toward a common end. So we put our miscellaneous gifts together and we work, we cross-pollinate each other to become something great. Have the people sit down. Because there is not any standing room only at the master's banquet table. You got to sit down. You have to have a seat. And there's always one more seat at the master's banquet table. I'm reminded of the story of Mephibosheth. If you're going to have a baby, don't name him Mephibosheth. <laughs> Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul. And King Saul was the mortal enemy of King David. King Saul was killed in battle, and King David took over the kingdom. And years later, King David remembers a covenant he had with King Saul's son. A, a friendship relationship. And because he had this covenant, he said, well, is there any descendants of King Saul out there still living? And someone did research and said, well, yes, there is one grandson of King Saul still living. David says, I'd like to honor him. Well, the problem is he's crippled. He can't get around. He can't be of any help to you. He can't do anything for himself. He's totally dependent on someone else. He's crippled. And David said, go get Mephibosheth and bring him back here. And he set a place at the table, and he spent Mephibosheth the cripple, spent the rest of his life sitting at the master's banquet table in the, in the, the throne room of the king, eating the same thing the king ate. What did he do to deserve that? Nothing. This is grace. God showed grace to the poor cripple. And that story is recorded in the Bible for you and I because we are the cripple. We are the sinners that can't make any progress. We can't go where God wants us to go. But the king says, go get him. Bring him here. 
We're going to sit him at the banquet table. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 10 says, In that day each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. There's, there's, there's going to there's come a time when you not have a vine and a fig tree and your life will be plenty, but you'll be inviting your neighbors to come in and sit under it. You'll be inviting them to come sit at the banquet table. We all have a room, a seat reserved at the banquet table, but there are many more seats. There's always more room. And Jesus won't come back until those seats are filled. So those of us that are praying, oh Lord, come back, Jesus. We need to know there's a few lost souls out there that have seats at the banquet table. And when they take their seat, then he'll come back. That'll be good news for us. So that's the first thing. There's got to be some kind of organization and structure to pull the people together. Here's the second thing. There's got to be a sacrifice. Somebody's got to prime the pump. Somebody's got to make an initial investment. Oh, Lord, we found this lad over here who has five small loaves, two small fish. We found what he has. But I think we all understand the boy's got to give it up. He apparently, according to the story, is the only one that had enough foresight to bring along enough food. And he's got to give up what he brought. Because if he doesn't give it up, Jesus has nothing to work with. Where shall we buy bread? Well, there's no place to go buy it, but here's a lad who will donate it. We learn if we want to see God's provision in our life, if we want to see him bless us, we've got to be sacrificing something. Somebody's got to make a contribution. Somebody's got to make a donation. Somebody's got to step in and put themselves into it. Somebody's got to prime the pump here so that the blessings can get flowing. And it was a lad who made that contribution. And God can't do anything through us if we're not making a contribution. If we think we're above that, we're too poor for that, we don't give anything, all the boy had was some small stuff. But he gave it. And all Jesus needs is some small stuff. And Jesus did not despise his small offering. Catch that. Never despises a small offering. Here's the third Requirement: if we're going to see God's provision in our life, there's got to be some thanksgiving. Jesus took what was given, the seed that was given, and he thanked God for it. There's no word of him ordering it to multiply or expand or something come out of nothing. There's no word of that. He just thanked God for what he had. The small stuff. Ask yourself this question. Don't raise a hand or don't answer me. How, how much time do you spend thanking God for the small stuff in your life? Well, I know you thank God if, he, if, if all of a sudden out of the blue $10,000 came your way. I know you'd thank God then. But what about the 10 bucks that comes your way? 
What about the small stuff? Do we see God behind the small stuff or do we only see God behind the big stuff? Because God is watching to see how we, how we respond to what little things he gives us. And if he, if he knows we'll be faithful in the little stuff, then he knows he can give us bigger stuff. And here's the fourth thing, fourth element, uh, the D. There's got to be some distribution. Distribution is giving away. Somebody's got to do the giving away. Jesus received it. He broke it. He thanked God for it. And he gave it to the disciples. He had to break it because he had five small loaves and two small fish and 12 disciples. The math doesn't add up. So he's got to break it down into smaller pieces to divide it up among the 12 disciples who probably each had a basket. They each took their basket and they started going among the clusters of people who were sitting on the grass. And they began to distribute those fragments. And they kept going and they kept going and they kept going until everyone had eaten all they wanted. It was the people who were eating that set the standard on how much they were receiving. There's a sermon in that. I think you and I establish the measurement of how much God can bless us. So when did the miracle occur? Did it occur when Jesus gave thanks? Did it occur when Jesus gave it to the disciples? Did it occur as the disciples were, were walking toward the crowd? Did it occur as they were taking the bread and the fish out of the basket? The Bible doesn't say. In other words, that's insignificant. It doesn't matter when it happened. What matters is that it happened. And every last person, every 5,000 of them, got enough to eat. They were filled. They were filled. Teaches me this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. For we, that's us, we believers, we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. We're co-workers. God thanks the food that's given to him, gives it back, and as we distribute it, the miracle occurs. And we are smart enough to know we can't do that miracle. There wasn't enough here to start. We can't do it. So something's happened as we're distributing it. It's kind of like the first miracle where the water was turned to wine. You know, they, they put water in there, and then when they dip it out, it's wine. When did that miracle happen? Who can we attribute it to? It's only Jesus. We've got to attribute that miracle to Jesus. We are laborers together. He does the miracle, but he won't do the miracle if we don't participate. Amen. Amen. And notice that the miracle occurred according to Christ's will, not their faith. They didn't have any faith, remember? What's that among so many? That's impossible, can't be done. 
But it happened because it was his will to do it. So if you think you're not seeing a miracle from God because you don't have enough faith, think again. Somebody's just got to prime the pump and get going, and God makes the miracle after that. And everybody ate as much as they wanted. Now, there's one more part of our story. And uh, this is in verses 12 and 13. Here's the, the final point. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So they started out with five small fish, or five small loaves, two small fish, divided it 12 ways, and ended up with 12 baskets full of fragments. That won't work in your math class. You get F on that assignment. That doesn't work. But it works with God. God has a way to make those numbers work. And I believe he works like that in our lives. God works off pieces. He's not looking for some big loaves. He's looking for pieces. All he needs is small stuff. If he has small stuff, he can make it fly. Pieces are small fragments of something much bigger. The something much bigger is the church of Jesus Christ, the assembly of the saints. And I am a piece. All by myself, I don't fit into anything. All by yourself, you don't fit into anything. But all together, our pieces come together and make a picture of what God wants to see done. We're all pieces, and God loves to use pieces, and he loves to use small pieces. I mean, it was a small stone placed in a sling by young David that took down the giant Goliath. Just a small stone. Yeah. It was just a young maiden, little slave girl, Israeli slave girl who had been captured by the Syrians, who was a slave in the home of Naaman, and Naaman got leprosy. And it was that young lady, not some, not some uh, mature prophet, it was that young gal who said, you know, I remember a prophet back in Israel by the name of Elisha who healed people who had leprosy. Maybe if you, Naaman the Syrian, would go over and see Elisha the prophet, he just might heal you. It was that little gal that had the word that set Naaman free. Just a young, just a young thing. And it took a young child to teach the disciples what it takes to be a part of the kingdom of God. Unless you have the faith of a child like this, you can't be a part of the kingdom of God. It took a child to teach the disciples that. So who gathered the pieces? Who brought them together? It was the same people that distributed the pieces. 
The same people that took the action in giving it away and meeting the needs in others who are now gathering the harvest and bringing it in. If you want to be a part of the harvest in these last days, you also have to be a distributor in these last days. It's the people who are actively going out there and getting them that receive the blessing back in exchange because we work together with God. And God only works through people. And then there's this last phrase. It's not a part of the outline, but I, I don't want to close out this story without looking at this. Jesus said, let nothing be wasted. Let nothing be wasted. The King James says, let nothing be lost. And we know what lost means in Bible terms. It has to do with missing heaven, missing the salvation, being lost, being hollow in our walk with God, our faith. Let nothing be wasted. Our God does not want anything wasted. His passion, our God's passion is to go after the leftover pieces, is to go after the pieces that were left behind by the others. He wants to go after the down and outers, the ones that were left out, the ones that are left behind. He wants to go after them. I consider myself one of those left behind. It was by the grace of God he came after me because I was not chasing him, but he found me. Are you one of the leftover pieces? He wants to gather up the leftover pieces and bring them in and make them a part of the harvest. He doesn't want anything wasted. He doesn't want any lost. He wants to claim it all. God's greedy. He wants to claim it all. He wants all the souls. So we see this dilemma. When we, when we talk about God as our provider, we instantly come back to ourselves. He provides for me. That's a wonderful promise. I'm going to claim that. And then we find out that the way he provides it's when people step up and participate. That's when the miracle happens. That's when God empowers what we can't empower. We give him our small stuff, and he solves a big problem. That's the God that we serve. That's the gospel I'm a part of. I'm, we, we need to be a part of this kind of conduit mentality. God blesses me, I'm going to pass it on so God can bless me more so I can pass it on. We need to stop thinking about what can I get from God? How can I get God to bless me? And we need to start thinking about how can I bless God? And the natural result of you, people like you and I, broken people, blessing God, the natural result is God blesses us. We don't chase after getting blessings. We give blessings. But we understand how God works. Yes. And we understand the blessing is coming in return. Amen. Can we stand together? These signs, these stories of what Jesus did are so revealing. They're so amazing about teaching us what God wants us to know about him. He is a provider. It's his basic nature. It's his basic character to be a provider. Yes. And uh, I... I I feel impressed to the Lord, like God's given me a word for fathers who feel alienated from your father. Yes. 
Father's Day to you is just a painful thing. It's not a celebration. It's a painful thing because you got a broken relationship with your dad. And I believe what the Holy Spirit is saying is he is your father. Amen. He has adopted you. You become every bit his child. You are adopted by him. And he's got big dreams for you. He's got big thoughts for you. He's not ashamed of you no matter what you've done because he's looking to your future. He's looking for what can be. He's looking for the renewal that he wants to put in your heart. So don't let Father's Day be a downer because of the hurt of the past. You've got a new father. and He's never going to hurt you. You may think he's hurt you. That's because we all need a trip to the woodshed every now and then. We all need some correction every now and then. But he loves us. And his end goal is where we need to be. That's the father that we serve. Embrace that word. Embrace that word because he's speaking to somebody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word that proves to us you provide. Now, Father, some of us are still struggling with this doubt that you would provide for us after the dumb things we've done. But Lord, we learned that even though the disciples didn't have faith, you still did the miracle. You tested them, but then you had to give them a model. And Father, help us to walk in that model, to be the people you called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We've got some prayer partners up here to pray with you if you have a prayer need. Uh, If you're a father, don't forget to pick up one of those booklets out there at the table. Go with God. He loves you.